Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, we'll be discussing Fahrenheit 451, the dystopian novel by Ray Bradbury, which was first published in 1953, as well as Francis Turfo's 1966 film adaptation. But first, a quick reminder that you can find more information about us, this podcast, and other podcasts in the KMMA Media Podcast Network by visiting www.kmmamedia.com. We also want to thank our patrons for their continued support. Just a dollar a month really helps us afford to keep this show going. More information at www.patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And if money is tight, but you still want to support us, great! Please like and share us on Facebook or on our website and consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends how much fun we are listening to. Help spread the word. We really appreciate it. Okay, let's get to Fahrenheit 451. So, Jennifer, had you ever heard of Fahrenheit 451 before we put it on this list? Um, it's a classic. It was in the background of everything. You know, I think a lot of people have absorbed this book by osmosis just because it's in the cultural consciousness. For sure. I had read it as a teenager at some point. Not, It was not assigned for school. I know that. I just know I just read it at some point. And then we read it for book club, and then we I read it again for this. But I had not seen the movie before I was preparing for this podcast. Had you seen the 1966 Truffaut movie? I think my brother and I might have caught it on one of those Sunday afternoon like media mania shows. It felt very 60s, so I, I have a vague recollection of that. Cool. All right, well, I'm going to do our recaps, and then we can talk more about both. Here we go. Book recap. Guy Montag is a fireman who burns books in a futuristic American city. In Montag's world, firemen start fires rather than putting them out. The people in this society do not read books, enjoy nature, spend time by themselves, think independently, or have meaningful conversations. Instead, they drive very fast, watch excessive amounts of quasi-interactive TV-type entertainment, called families, on the walls of their parlors, and listen to the radio or on seashell radio earbuds that they stick in their ears. Montag encounters his neighbor, a gentle 17-year-old girl named Clarice McClellan, who opens his eyes to the emptiness of his life with her innocently penetrating questions and her unusual love of people and nature. Over the next few days, Montag experiences a sense of disturbing events. First, his wife, Mildred, attempts suicide by swallowing a bottle of sleeping pills. She is resuscitated by two technicians who literally just pump away her, quote, bad blood with a creepy machine and then refill her with, quote, better, healthier blood. 
Then, when Montag responds to an alarm that an old woman has a stash of hidden literature, the woman shocks him and the rest of the fire crew by choosing to be burned alive along with all her books, and to light the match herself. A few days later, he hears that Clarice has been killed by a speeding car. Montag is distraught and disillusioned. At a fire, he accidentally instinctively steals a book instead of burning it. He has it under his pillow and is sick. He can't face going back to work. Because Montag didn't show up for work, his fire chief, Beatty, pays a visit to his house. Beatty explains that it's normal for a fireman to go through a phase of wondering what books have to offer, and he delivers a dizzying monologue explaining how books came to be banned in the first place. According to Beatty, special interest groups and other minorities objected to books that offended them. Soon, books all began to look the same as writers tried to avoid offending anyone. This was not enough, however, and society as a whole decided to simply burn books rather than permit conflicting opinions. Beatty tells Montag to take 24 hours or so to see if his stolen book contains anything worthwhile and then turn them in for incineration. While he's there, Mildred finds the book that Montag has under his pillow and is horrified, but says nothing until after Beatty leaves. Then she's all about burning it in the home incinerator, but Montag shocks her by opening up the ventilation vent and pulling out dozens more. He convinces her to listen to him read, and she hates it. She cannot understand it. Frustrated, Montag thinks back to a chance encounter he had with an old retired English professor in the park many years ago. The man who talked differently than others actually had poetry with him, a man Montag didn't turn in. He eventually lets his wife go back to watching TV and goes to see the man. The man's name is Farber. Montag visits Farber in Farber's home. Farber tells him that the value of books lies in the detailed awareness of life that they contain. Farber says that Montag needs not only books, but also the leisure to read them, and the freedom to act upon their ideas. Farber agrees to help Montag with his reading, and they concoct a risky scheme to overthrow the status quo. Farber will contact a printer and begin reproducing books, and Montag will plant books in the homes of firemen to discredit the profession and to destroy the machinery of censorship. Farber gives him a two-way radio earpiece, a green bullet, so that he can hear what Montag hears and talk to him secretly. Montag goes home, and soon two of his wife's friends arrive to watch television. The women discuss their families in the war that is about to be declared in an extremely frivolous manner. Their superficiality angers Montag, and he takes out a book of poetry and punishes them by reading Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. Faber buzzes in his ear for him to be quiet, and Mildred tries to explain that the poetry reading is a, you know, standard way for firemen to uh, demonstrate yeah, the uselessness of literature. Yeah, that's it. The women are extremely disturbed by the poem and leave to file a complaint against Montag. Montag goes to the fire station and hands over one of his books to Beatty. Beatty confuses Montag by barraging him with contradictory quotations from great books. Beatty exploits these contradictions to show that literature is morbid and dangerously complex and that it deserves incineration. Suddenly, the alarm sounds. They rush off to answer the call, only to find that the alarm is at Montag's own house. Mildred gets into a cab with her suitcase, and Montag realizes his own wife has betrayed him. Beatty forces Montag to burn the house himself. When he is done, Beatty places him under arrest. When Beatty continues to berate Montag, Montag turns the flamethrower on his superior and proceeds to burn him to ashes. Montag knocks the other fireman unconscious and runs. The mechanical hound, a monstrous machine that Beatty has set to attack Montag, pounces and injects Montag's leg with a large dose of an anesthetic. Montag manages to destroy it with his flamethrower, then he walks off the numbness in his leg and escapes with some books that were hidden in his backyard. He hides these in another fireman's house and calls in an alarm from a payphone. 
Montag goes to Faber's house, where he learns that a new hound has been put on his trail, along with several helicopters and a television crew. Faber tells Montag that he's leaving for St. Louis to see a retired printer who may be able to help them. Montag gives Faber some money and tells him how to remove Montag's scent from his house so the hound will not enter it. Montag then takes some of Faber's old clothes and runs off towards the river. The whole city watches as the chase unfolds on television. The chase is scary. Montag almost dies via some asshole teens in a car that try to hit him, and at one point the authorities ask the entire city to open windows and doors to look for him. Montag manages to escape in the river and change into Farber's clothes to disguise his scent. The authorities, to save face, have a new hound, find, capture, and kill on live television some other random man so that everyone will continue to have faith in the system. Montag drifts downstream into the country and follows a set of abandoned railroad tracks until he finds a group of renegade intellectuals, aka the book people. They are led by a man named Granger who welcomes him. They are part of a nationwide network of book lovers who have memorized many great works of literature and philosophy. They hope that they may be of some help to mankind in the aftermath of the war that has just been declared. Montag's role is to memorize the book of Ecclesiastes. Suddenly enemy jets appear in the sky and completely obliterate the city with bombs. Montag and his new friends move on in search of survivors, hoping to rebuild civilization. Okay, movie! In the future, a totalitarian government employs a force known as firemen to seek out and destroy all literature as well as keep order by making everyone the same. This includes forced haircuts. They have the power to search anyone anywhere at any time and burn any books they find. One of the firemen, Guy Montag, is our protagonist. He is up for promotion because he doesn't say much and does his job calmly and proficiently. Montag meets one of his neighbors, Clarice, a young schoolteacher who may be fired due to her unorthodox views. The two have a discussion about his job where she asks whether he's ever read the books he burns and if he is unhappy. He wasn't unhappy. But now... His wife is Linda. She enjoys watching TV on their large screen, taking pills, and being a pretty docile 1960s sort of housewife. She's glad about his upcoming promotion, as it means that they will be able to afford another TV wall. She's content with their life and was thrilled to be, quote, a part of the interactive television show, unquote. When Montag points out that they just said the name Linda and she wasn't actually involved, she is cross with him. He, by the way, is looking at wordless comics in bed. At the firehouse, we get a bit about the history of firemen and see a bit of the training of a new fireman. You must know how to hide before you know how to find, Montag sends. Two student firemen are punished for, well, I have a theory. Anyway, more talk about his upcoming promotion and the captain continues to beat the theme into the ground. Books make people unhappy. Keep the public busy and you keep them happy. At home, Montag finds Linda, who has overdosed on one of her many types of pills. Two technicians show up to pump her full of better blood. The next morning, she doesn't even remember, but she is randy as heck thanks to her new better blood. And suddenly it's the 35-minute mark and he has stolen a book and he's hiding it in his vent. It is David Copperfield. He reads it by the light of the TV while Linda is asleep. He sees Clarice again with an older woman and then Clarice ambushes him and goes all manic pixie dream girl in distress. She has been fired and she wants to know why, but she's afraid to go to the school to find out. She begs him to go with her and he agrees. And then he stands by while she phones his firehouse, impersonates his wife, which is funny because the actress is playing both roles, and calls in sick for him. Off they go to the school, which is about as dreary and impressive as you might imagine. The kids are afraid of her. They've been brainwashed. And so Clarice and Montag leave. Clarice is in tears. Oh, and he admits to her that he has read a book. At home, Linda has found the books and is horrified and disgusted. He doesn't care about his discomfort. He must read. At the house of an illegal book collector, the fire captain talks with Montag at length about how books make people unhappy and makes them want to think that they are better than others, which is considered antisocial. 
Yes, the theme again. The only way for people to be happy is for everyone to be the same. His speech is pretty much political correctness will lead to anarchy, so let's just skip to the fascist regime part of the history. The book collector, the same old woman who was seen with Clarice earlier, refuses to leave her home, opting instead to burn herself and the house so she can die with her books. Montauk is horrified. At home, he tries to tell Linda and her visiting friends about the woman who martyred herself in the name of books and confronts them about not knowing anything about what's going on in the world, calling them zombies and telling them that they're just killing time instead of living life. Disturbed over Montauk's behavior, Linda's friends try to leave, but Montauk stops them, forces them to sit and listen to him as he reads from a novel. During the reading, one of Linda's friends breaks down crying, aware of the feelings she repressed over the years, while Linda's other friends leave in disgust over Montauk's alleged cruelty and the sick content of the novel. That night, Montag dreams of Clarice as the book collector who killed herself. The same night, Clarice's house is raided, but she escapes through a trapdoor in the roof thanks to her uncle. The next day, Montag breaks into the captain's office looking for information about the missing Clarice and is caught, but not punished. Montag meets up with Clarice, although how he knew that she would return to her house and bother to hide behind a pillar waiting for her is not explained. And then he helps her break back into her house to destroy papers that would bring the firemen to others like her. She tells him of the book people, a hidden sect of people who flout the law, each of whom have memorized a book to keep it alive. I guess memorizing addresses is too hard, but whatever. Later, Montag tells the captain that he's resigning, but he is convinced to go on one more call, which turns out to be his own house. Linda leaves the house telling Montag that she couldn't live with the book obsession and leaves him to be punished by the firemen. Side note, this would have been more impactful if we hadn't literally watched her turn him in in an earlier scene, but I guess even amazing directors and screenwriters are bound to mess up once in a while. The captain says that Montag gets the honors of burning and angrily Montag destroys the bedroom and television before setting fire to the books. The captain lectures him about the books and pulls a last book from Montag's coat, but this is a book and a step too far. Montag won't give it up. A fight ensues. Montag burns the captain alive. He escapes, goes on the run. The public is alerted to his crimes, and there is an eerie scene of people all opening their doors to look for him. Also, at one point, he makes use of a conveniently placed boat and hides from the flying firemen, which was a thing that sounds way cooler than it actually was. Thanks to Clarice, though, he finds the book people, where he views his capture and execution on television stage to keep the masses entertained, and because the government doesn't want it to be known that he's alive. Montag selects a book to memorize, Tales of Mystery and Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe, and becomes one of the book people. You see, each one is a book, and when the dark age they are currently in is over, they will write them all back down again. Clarice is also there, and the two stroll together along with the other book people as a young boy learns a book in the snow, and oh my god, it's actually quite moving, and it gave me a lump in my throat. The end. That was an impressive recap. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so what do you want to get into first? Oh, boy. So much. <laughs> so much. Let's start with one of the major misconceptions is because this is something that is in the background of our culture, we have kind of a basic understanding that it's about censorship. If you think it's about censorship, you're missing a lot of what's going on. Yes. And we have that because book burning as part of different fascist regimes is usually about censorship. This particular time, it's it's more than just pure censorship it's about it's i don't want to take from 1984 but it's more thought control thought police kind of stuff it's about keeping people busy and keeping people happy and keeping people like the opiate of the masses kind of a thing the novel was inspired by actual instances of book burning and censorship but bradbury's taking it into another direction that is the the social ill that he is concerned with of the day yeah so he wrote it 
in response partly to like the McCarthyism, which was happening, and also television was becoming a thing, and political correctness. So those were kind of his three things that definitely inform this. There is some stuff about censorship. So since that is a main thing that a lot of people know about this, those are the things I want to touch on. The competing forms of entertainment, such as television and radio, right? But it's not just a lot of different television and radio. It's state-sanctioned, it's very simple, it's streamlined, and it's really only one. There's the radio where people put in their ears and it's a constant flow, but there's not different channels, and the same with the television. It has to do with censorship in the way that nobody, random people weren't able to make their own television podcasts, radio shows, etc. It was all state-sanctioned, which has a tie into censorship. We also have the presence of fast cars, loud music, advertisements. They create a lifestyle with too much stimulation. No one has the time to concentrate, which, again, isn't really censorship. But it, it to me, it definitely feels like it connects to the idea of control. Because what censorship really is, is about taking things away that so people don't know that they exist. And I feel like if you oversaturate the market with something and people don't know that there's other options, that's that's a form of censorship, right? It's a form of social control. Yes, which is also what censorship is. He goes into this thing in, in the book and a little bit in the movie too about how they got here had, had to do with a couple things. One was the huge mass of published materials. It's too overwhelming to even think about. So it led to a society that needs condensed books. And condensed books were very popular in the time that Bradbury was writing. They were very popular when I was a kid. Have you ever seen the abridged version of this or the children's version of that? It's condensed. And in this world, it was condensed and condensed and condensed till it was just pamphlets, until it was just pictures. And, and it's kind of funny because a lot of people, you said this book is in the osmosis. A lot of people feel like they've read it. They know about it because they've heard a couple bits and pieces. They've heard the condensed version, even though the book itself is only 50,000 words. It's not very long. I thought that was kind of interesting. But the idea that we want things so fast, and I mean, that's very true today. People read headlines. A lot of times people don't bother to read articles. Yeah, that's true enough. And I've gotten into a number of discussions where, oh, yeah, you obviously didn't read the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the idea of the objections of special interest groups and minorities to things in books that offend them. <laughs> so I had some issues with Bradbury on that one. Yeah, and I have a whole little section here about Bradbury himself and some delightful quotes. He's a curmudgeon. <laughs> I mean, I would like to save our conversation about him specifically for a little bit, but the idea in the book about there being these minorities, and he was very careful in the book to not make them racial minorities. It's like, dog lovers get mad about this, and then cat lovers get mad about this, which is... A logical fallacy, I think. There's a logical fallacy where you simplify something to the point, you make it almost like a nursery rhyme so that nobody can actually argue that, but it symbolizes what you're actually trying to say. You know more about logical fallacies yeah, than I it's, do. Yeah, it's a little bit like almost like a straw man where you're making a very simplified thing. Yes. And using that as your argument. Yes, Shraman, thank you. That's exactly it. But the main themes of both the knowledge versus ignorance, one of the things that is said has to do with envy. People don't like to feel inferior to those who have read more than they have. And it's so funny that we're reading this and we're we're doing this in this 2020 presidential election time. 
there's a ton of paradox that's going on in the novel, and if you want to apply it to modern life, there's a ton of paradox within that. Part of the issue is having cred, you've read this book and that book, and yet nobody has done the true work of becoming an expert. You know, it's like absorbing Fahrenheit 451 by social osmosis rather than reading the book. It's thinking that you understand how fire control works because you've read a couple articles, but you haven't taken the years and discipline necessary to really understand the thing. You know, you can talk about that with medicine and how viruses work mm -hmm. or how taxes work. We're not experts in everything, but there's a very loud segment of the population that's watched a YouTube video or read an article and has the temerity to pretend that they're an expert and be very loud about that expertise. Yeah, the idea, well, do your own, I've done my research. I've, I Googled it and I now know more than the doctors or, you know, the whatever, pick your, pick your poison, so to speak. Yeah. And at the same time, it's the decoration of experts. Definitely. Definitely. And even people will say, well, I'm an expert in this. And even the word doesn't mean the same. My, my husband is a bona fide expert in a few things having to do with archaeology and some native peoples and places. He went to school for multiple years, has a master's degree in this area. So he is a bona fide expert in that. Other people might just be knowledgeable. And I think that we mm -hmm. as a society sometimes don't give enough credit. I think we should give more credit if someone says I'm knowledgeable about this. I think that that should mean I have looked into it. I have a general sense of knowledge about it, maybe a little bit more knowledge than the average person, but that doesn't make me an expert. But that also should mean that you have actually studied multiple facets of it and not just looked at, you know, the... The part that you want to read. Exactly. The part that gives you your confirmation bias. Oh, well, I watched a CNN news segment, and therefore now I'm an expert in the Middle East con you know, conflict. No, man, that's not how that works. You need a lot more. You need multiple sources and peer reviews when it comes to science. So do you want to talk some more about some of the other paradoxes? Because there was there were several other ones in the book and movie both. Yeah, uh, the, the thing about knowledge, there, there's this one conversation that really got to me, and it's when Montag is talking with his supervisor, and they're talking about books, and his supervisor says, well, you'll say this, and I'll counter it with this quote, and then you'll say that quote, and I'll counter it with this quote, and it's this war of factoids without really having a conversation without understanding and without knowledge and that seems very prescient of what we do today you know i have this little factoid i'm going to weaponize it against you you have your factoid you'll weaponize it against me but where is the knowledge within that yeah and where's the context exactly i liked also when montag and faber were talking about well at mvd too the struggle with knowledge and ignorance not just the envy aspect of it, because honestly, knowledge is something anyone can attain, right? I mean, it, it should be. Maybe that's a flawed assumption. And not saying that it's as easy for everybody to attain the same level of knowledge, but information is out there. So if you're going to say that nobody's allowed to be an expert, does that mean we're, we're taking away the information? You know what I mean? Like, so what they're basically doing is taking away the information so that nobody can be knowledgeable. Therefore, nobody can be ignorant. Well, I'm sorry, you can be ignorant and still be very knowledgeable <laughs> about certain things. This is something I've noticed with a particular group, the anti-vaxxers, who I have a distaste for, I will put in mild terms. 
they're not unknowledgeable. They have worked very hard. They've read lots of articles. They know about the molecular size of uh, mercury. They have all this information about nutrition and the effect of you know fats and lipoids, except that it's all geared into one direction and it isn't objective. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what's missing. And that's one of those paradoxes when you're flooded with information, but you can't discern what's useful and what's not. Because you don't have the background. You don't have the critical background necessary. Yeah. And again, and then there's experts who are actual experts who aren't being trusted because everything's so political. Well, I don't trust them because they are the expert that was promoted by the left or they're the expert that was promoted by the right. Or sometimes you want the, you want the simple answer. Yeah. So the simple answer of my child has autism, it's not because there's complex biological reasons. It's not because of this or that. It has to be, well, it's vaccines. And there's my simple answer. And it makes my world easier to deal with. Yes. That's what I find really fascinating is this whole idea of being too full and at the same time being completely empty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're at a buffet of Twinkies. So you can be stuffed to the brim, but it's full of crap. And you're not getting any nutrition. Right. And you're going to be hungry again. You're going to starve. But I did think it was interesting in both the fireman's duty is to destroy the knowledge, to promote the ignorance in order to equalize the population and promote the sameness. And in the book, it was really just about the books. Uh, The book, it was about the books, you know, burning the books, burning the books. In the movie, it definitely took it to another level with, like I said, there was the forced haircut aspect and they had stuff they were showing and they were like everyone's the same isn't being the same fun and then the little video of all the happy smiling people you know this guy was forced into a haircut on live television but then we see someone who looks like him smiling because he's glad to be part of the group and not to be an outlier anymore that idea of conformity but conformity that's that's based on ignorance is interesting because the idea of conformity or making an entire population the same as a way of social control is not new or particularly imaginative. Using ignorance as the impetus in that instead of ignorance as the tool to keep it that way, I thought was interesting. Does that make sense as the distinction? Mm-hmm. I think we're, we're kind of getting to the end of this particular theme, but mm-hmm. it's so prescient right now. You have a million television channels, but when it comes to politicians, what are your choices really? Oh, yeah. You know, when it comes to like the big choices, the important ones, but you're you're flooded and you're saturated. You know, you've got 50 types of bread to choose. Do you have a choice in electric companies and internet providers and the stuff that would actually matter a little bit more? I loved it in the book where they're talking about the presidential election and they're like, how handsome he is. This was like the good guy versus the not. And like the the opponent was small and snivelly and picked his nose and had a horrible name. And so it didn't even matter their politics at all because it was so clearly set up that there was going to be a winner and a loser. That was written before the Nixon-Kennedy debate where that famously became a thing. Mm-hmm. Kennedy looked composed, so even though if you only listen to the audio, Nixon won, and the video, Kennedy won. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that was like seven years. That debate was a a number of years after the novel was written. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of that stuff is still very, very, very prevalent. Now, when you're shopping for something, you might pick the, the apple that looks rosier than the other apple. Like, I think that there is a human thing about 
being drawn to certain things and those but that can be very easily manipulated and so that kind of gets into the next theme which is really all about authority and control which we were just talking about here's a quote from the book if you don't want a man unhappy politically don't give him two sides to a question to worry him give him one better yet give him none let him forget there is such a thing as war give the people a contest they win by remembering the words to more popular songs or the names of state capitals or how much corn grows in iowa last year yeah not subtle obviously but the idea about just make it easy for people and when there's a quote-unquote election make the the conclusion a foregone conclusion because one is portrayed as awesome and one is portrayed as not so great. I will tell you that that little aspect of the presidential thing is one of the things that I remembered from this book years and years later, you know, 20 plus years after reading it was that that false dichotomy almost of, yeah, you could vote for this loser or you can vote for this shining example of beauty, you know. Nuance is lost. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. This did frustrate me a little bit because he's talking about well knowledge versus factoids and factoids must be useless except for when they're not it depends on what you're trying to do so if you're wanting to know what the corn production in Iowa was that could be important to understanding weather patterns that could be under important to understanding greater economic forces since our country has a lot of corn in our diet yeah so it's stuff like that where it's like you know it, it kind of depends on context Facts aren't necessarily useless, and that wrinkled on me. I get that he's trying to do critical thinking as opposed to just, you know, memorization. I bumped on that also, especially the context aspect, because one of the things that they complain about in both book and movie, the, the regime complains that books have conflicting thoughts and opinions and that is what leads to strife is because that nobody agrees on these big universal things whereas if you memorize the words to a song or know the number the amount of corn that was grown in Iowa last year that's an indisputable fact so we should only be thinking about those that's why we shouldn't have literature we shouldn't have fiction we shouldn't have these philosophy and psychology because those are these unanswered things and I thought except that if one if you get a factoid about how much corn was grown in Iowa and then somebody else comes along and says well actually no this is how much corn was grown in Iowa how do you determine who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth I mean we do have a thing about fake news and we've always had a thing about fake news although now it's been a little bit more codified where people only trust the sources so do you trust the, the if the government says millions of pounds of corn but the farmers are like what what are you talking about there was a famine there was no corn last year are the people are going to believe so my point is that the facts themselves it's not enough just to say these are indisputable facts because even facts can be disputed that you need an expert you need a context to understand which facts are actually real does that make does that make sense yeah it galls me to no end this whole idea of alternative facts though Ugh. where you can say okay well this was an objective fact well i have a different point of view and my view my opinion is now a fact yeah. instead of being an opinion so that is very much a thing today boo <laughs> this is probably one of the biggest bones of contention and the weaponization of facts is how we don't have the same reality that we're living in we can't agree on a reality and therefore you can't have any sort of a cohesion mm -hmm. oh for sure that's what's really breaking apart our society right now i just watched a neil degrasse 
video thing about climate change, like a four minute video this morning, and he was talking about the science of reality. So human behavior is warming the planet. And until we all agree with that fact, we can't even begin to talk about the political things of how do we fix it? Is it this way, this way, this way, this way? And there's different benefits and cons to all of those different ways. But that's a political question. The the factual thing is, we have to agree to this, we have to have the same starting point. Like you said, we have to live in the same version of reality. And you're right, we really don't live in the same version of reality right now. Yeah, facts don't care about your feelings, but your feelings will determine what you believe. And that is going to determine what facts that you want to have supporting your side. And this is a thing for intellectuals. Uh, This is something that happens with smart people is that you can intellectualize yourself into a trap. I have seen people defend the indefendable in better ways than the original idiot in chief could do. So there's somebody who says, yeah, if you ingest bleach, this will help kill a virus. And he's an idiot. But I will see people, well, you know, in cancer treatments, this kind of bleach is actually used. They'll do some research to try and support that that little factoid without understanding that there's different forms of bleach. There's, there's The chemicals aren't the same. They aren't used in the same way. You still shouldn't adjust. Don't drink bleach. Yes. The moral of the story is don't drink bleach. <laughs> the more you know. Yes, our PSA today, don't, don't drink bleach. One other aspect of the authority and control kind of going along with censorship and also getting into our next theme for me, which is technology as dangerous. But my last little bit here about authority and control has to do with everybody getting up and looking out their windows and their doors because the voice on the television tells them all to as part of like this communal manhunt for him at the end. It was said in the book, he could sense it, he could tell, he could imagine it happening. But in the movie, we actually saw it and it was incredibly chilling. And it's this very quiet, long shot of, of the car going by and telling people to do it. And then everybody at the same time opening their doors and very group think. There's something about British television. I know this was directed by a, a French director who didn't speak any English at all. But there's something I've noticed about British movies that they can be unintentionally heavily creepy. So there's a scene where Clarice and was it her mother or grandmother they're they're following montag and the way it's done is incredibly creepy especially when she's a sympathetic character yeah they're just walking behind and the music is kind of yeah foreboding. It's, it's, there's a very shining feel like when she's in the school and there's a kid who's freaking out it's so much creepier i expect a ghost to pop out at some point or the walls to bleed it's just a, a filming thing. I know we're going to talk more about the film, but uh, there were definitely influences by Alfred Hitchcock, which definitely he gets into those horror and, and particular camera movements and stuff to make us feel on edge to add to our level of frustration and intensity. So there's supposed to be alienation, but I, I don't think it was done very well in that you're making sympathetic characters, putting them in the position of the threat. I know we're going to have difference of opinions about the movie and I definitely want to get there. I hopefully I will remember to come back to this because I think there was a reason for that, but I want to move on to the other main theme before we talk about the adaptation aspect, which is the technology is dangerous, which was in both. Can technology be a placeholder for progress? I was thinking in terms of political correctness and how that ties in. I feel like he's talking a lot about technology. Technology is bad. All the things in the book that are technology. Not only that, there's this really fascinating thing where 
technology is becoming more lifelike. Like the dogs actually reacts to Montag at one point and gets all snarly with him and it's a machine. And then you have his wife who at one point, as far as soul is concerned, she has a soul death. Her blood is completely removed and cleaned out by this machine. And so she's not really alive, even though she is. She's empty. She's there, but she's not there. Yes. I thought it was interesting in both that all the made big technological things were bad things, right? So the like you said, the hound, the mechanical hound is bad. The, the cars are really fast. Nobody drives at regular speeds anymore. They, everybody drives super, super, super fast. That's a technology that is being used for bad. The big walls of TVs in the parlors are being used for control and all of the stuff. Again, bad. The seashells in the ears, again, bad. And it's not like there are tools that some people are using for nefarious purposes and their technology is a tool and other people are using it for good. It's most of the technology that is shown in the book. In fact, with the exception maybe of the earbud that Faber comes up with, is used for bad. It's used for ill will. And I just thought that was, he's definitely making a point about technology. Then you get into the the book people who are supposedly this amazing, you know, little group out there and they're burning their, they're cooking on a campfire. They're not using a stove. And then we, I mean, we haven't really talked about it yet, but there's freaking, there's an atomic war happening. There's atomic bombs. There's these jet planes going on overhead that is just part of the background of, that adds to the fear and tension of the book. So technology is bad, is basically what we get from the book. And I just was wondering, considering that part of what the book is saying about how political correctness is what partly led to this, if technology is just another fancy word for progress because it's progress that moves us into the world where we have tools that we can choose to use for good or ill it's progress that makes people more aware that there's been a difference in equality and equity in the past and therefore it's progress that leads to political correctness right it's people waking up and that sense of empathy goes with progress i think most of the the progress in terms of social movements are built on a sense of empathy and progress in terms of technology, they can go hand in hand. But in this, we we don't have that connection. We have progress of technology, but no empathy to go along with it. To quickly just go back onto a theme there, part of what you see with the community at the end is the world being righted. Fire is used in destruction, whereas later on it's used what was intended for by humans as a tool to cook. So it's a tool in both senses, one for ill, one for good. One is considered the natural way that it should be, and the first one is the perversion. The fireman is a perversion of what they're supposed to be. So I like that aspect of it. I really, really hate that whole theme that technology is bad, though, and that it limits progress. Well, I hate it, too. I love technology. We're literally sitting on on our wall screen, our wall television, doing a thing. No, I'm super pro-technology and love living in the future. I'm just saying that I think that the book was saying technology is bad and evil. Oh, yeah. That, that's definitely a theme from Bradbury. But he does treat technology as inherently anesthetizing and destructive. The television shows are pointless and violent. They're purely entertainment. And everything's very addictive. Mildred can't be unplugged at all. She is super, super plugged in at all times. Again, I think it goes into technology, but not empathy, because she is 
titillated by the violence that she sees, but doesn't ever think about it. She doesn't think that it's an actual person. That desensitization of violence is horrifying. The driving fast and the it's murdering, it's a way of disengagement, even though they're not really ever engaged at all. It's fascinating because this whole thing is about we're keeping people happy, we're keeping people happy, but nobody's happy. Mildred has to basically drug herself to move and then to sleep. And then when she's feeling down, she drives super, super fast as a way to escape from her feelings. But she has no feelings because all she's basically doing is being entertained. It's the hollowness of our existence. Yeah, exactly. She's not actually thinking about anything. That's one of the things I will say I liked about the novel uh, is how you can be, again, you can be completely stuffed your stomach is full but you're malnourished you're not getting something that you need on a spiritual level you're not getting something that you really need on the intellectual level to make yourself happy so montag is a perfect example of this and his character arc of yeah i'm happy but he's the thoughtless kind of happy because he's not even noticing how depressed he is Mm mm-hmm yeah, I I hit that technology thing. Well, why why is she driving fast? Well, why do I drive fast? Because I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm doing it because there's a purpose. Right. As opposed to Mildred, who just drives fast just to drive fast. Or the teens in the book who are driving fast and threatening to run people over. It's thrill-seeking. You know, they want to feel something because they've been so anesthetized. And, and then part of that goes with the detachment. There's this whole thing. There's Freaking nuclear wars. Two nuclear wars that occurred in the novel's recent past. They're gearing up for another nuclear war. One of the women's husband has been sent off to war. Like they're talking about, oh, my husband died because he jumped off a building. We're not going to talk about that. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Like we're not engaged. How often do we think about the wars that we're in? Well, some of us think about them more than others, for sure. I I get that. But I think that it was It's like a caricature. The nuclear war. Oh, yeah, there's going to be war. But nobody cares. Nobody cares that it's nuclear war. It's not somewhere else over there. It's literally, and then the whole city gets destroyed. Okay, so books. Books. Books are thought depositories. They symbol like the leisure, the thoughts, the imagination, the ability to escape, the empathy, the deep learning. Books. Books are hooray. Books are way more readily available now than they ever have been in all of human history, right? Not just books, but knowledge, right? There's Wikipedia. There's the internet. There's books. Books are affordable. Books are everywhere. Also, books are on our screens. I have a Kindle. I mean, books are in the cloud. So are they more or less at risk? And you want to say, no, 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 because they've been uploaded in the cloud. They're just there. They exist. But I will point you to the fact that a couple years ago, the publishing rights to a book was removed by the publisher and a bunch of people who had purchased a book and downloaded it to their Kindle woke up one day and that book was no longer there. And you know the story, Jennifer. Which book was it? 1984! Exactly. (laughs) Could it have been a worse book (laughs) to do that to? (laughs) The irony of that was so rich. So rich. So, you know, here's this thing, like, what if all the technology goes away? And I mean, I know that it's a far flung thing. I, I Anything's at risk, right? But I'm a big time book collector. I collect books. I have lots of books. I have books on my Kindle too. And part of the reason why when I travel, I always have both is because the Kindle does require battery life. Like I have to plug it in. It, there's electricity that is necessary. 
if the cloud goes away or the servers go down somewhere or whatever else, it's gone, right? You have a physical copy. That's not going to happen, except that then there's drawbacks of the physical copy too. You can lose it. it. Stuff can get spilled on it. Some crazy fireman might show up and burn it. You know, I mean, there's stuff that can happen. But one of my favorite quotes, I wish I had come up with this myself. It was from a comedian and it was a tweet. He says, my book just ran out of batteries. Stupid future. <laughs> Isn't technology wonderful? Speaking of this, about books being on screens and screens and, and, and all of that stuff, I started to think about how kids today might resonate or not resonate with this book. So I actually talked to a retired English teacher who taught this book for many, many years. And I think right now is the great time for me to play a little bit of that interview. Hi, I'm Sally. I'm a retired English teacher. I taught high school English for 27 years and most of my career was spent with juniors although i taught all grade levels juniors was what i spent the most time with and you taught fahrenheit 451 i did what is it like to teach fahrenheit 451 it's it's kind of interesting because it was easier in the 90s because it was still kind of futuristic in the 90s. And so kids were kind of interested in, oh, wow, they can just touch the door and it, you know, reads their fingerprints or whatever to open the door. And wow, they have a TV that takes up the whole wall. And, and you know, it was still, that was still kind of new because at that time, I think the latest technology was, you know, a Walkman where you walked around with the big, headphones and you had the little cassette tape you could put in your Walkman and that's as close as portable music as you got. And then by, you know, 2012, 2013 or so, it was, it was kind of like, it was cheesy. And I, at that point, I wasn't teaching it. Like everybody, we're all going to read this book. We had um, for several years, I had a unit in the spring where I gave them a choice of like six or eight books and they chose it. And then whoever else in that class was reading that book, they would get together and have discussions. And I, of course, was reading all the books along with them. And I would pop into the discussion groups from each book. And it was just, it was kind of laughable by that time that Bradbury predicted all this fascinating stuff would happen by the mid 24th century, I think it's been a while, but you know, it was 500 years after the Civil War. So they thought it was kind of laughable that Bradbury thought all of this stuff would take 500 years to happen. And, you know, 60 years later, it, some of it was old technology. One of the things that I found interesting was the idea of books being symbols for thought depositories. It's not just the physical book. It's what the book symbolizes. But I was wondering if kids, and I mean, nowadays, my kid borrows books from the library and then reads them on her computer screen and books are saved in the cloud, like how that affects kids today thinking about books do you think that they got it that the it was more than just a book or do you think that they got hung up on the fact that it's all virtual and digital and stuff now right i think that slowed some of them down but they kind of the kids who enjoyed the book who chose to read it because they liked that genre they kind of liked the idea of a human being being a book 
you know, like I'm going to memorize the Bible. And now I am the only copy of the Bible there is on earth. And I know it by heart. And some of them kind of found that to be a pretty interesting idea that, you know, that people would actually dedicate their lives to memorizing books and representing that, that idea of that book. But yeah, again, like you say, it's like books are so accessible to us, but fewer and fewer people read. Mm -hmm. One of the things about this book being maybe about censorship, depending on who you ask, is that it has been challenged and attempted to be banned in a bunch of places. Some of the things that parents have been concerned of in the past is that it is filthy, it talks about adult themes, it uses bad language, etc. You taught it to juniors. Do you think that juniors are the right age group? Do you think that this book could or should be read by younger, older? What do you, what do you think about age group in terms of tone and subject matter? I, I think 16 and 17 year olds, especially today, have been exposed to so much language and sex and violence and stuff that it's not shocking to them. That's not hard for them. But I think also at this point, it almost takes an adult to appreciate the book just because, you know, somebody who can remember when we didn't have cell phones, somebody who can remember when the TV was a little box, you know, and I think, I think, I don't know if necessarily the younger kids are a better audience and adults are a better audience. I think it's one of those books that if you read it as a younger person, you would get something totally different out of it if you read it as an adult. I read it for the first time when I was probably 30. And I talked about it with my husband who had read it as an assigned book in junior high and I think seventh grade. And we saw totally different things in the book. But then again, in seventh grade, it, he was in the seventh grade in the late 60s, and it was cool and futuristic and wow. And that's kind of like a lot of what he got out of it was just the cool and futuristic and the sci-fi stuff. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was going to kind of ask you how you thought it aged. You kind of already spoke to that a little bit, but it is, it is weird to read it now. It's weird when you, like, I remember reading 1984 in 1994 because of right. when I read, you know, <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I oh. taught it in 1990. And, but yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like one of the things that we would talk about in, you know, more current times with that book was, you know, the things that he predicted would exist in the future and how many of them exist, how many of them we've gone beyond, how many of them we don't have a need for you know it was it's kind of hard because you really have to put your mindset into this was written in 1950 I don't know like 53 55 I don't really remember but you know he had to have a real I guess that was the time of all the B sci-fi movies and spacemen and all that stuff but it seems like he had to have a really good imagination to come up with some of the stuff he came up with Oh, yeah, for sure. The technology stuff, the hound specifically. Yeah, a robot dog. Yeah, a scary robot dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, an evil robot dog. But, you know, even then, even back then, the whole idea of, I 
think it was helicopters at the end that were flying over with the lights searching for him. That was a foreign concept. Really? I mean, as far as in a city, yeah, they did it in wartime and stuff. But as far as like police using helicopters, that didn't happen when I was a kid. How interesting. I've always grown up in a world where helicopters could fly over and at loudspeakers and stuff. I mean, I guess that that would have been way, like you said, futuristic, but also very scary. Just another little component that added to the the horror scariness of it, that that part didn't scare me. I mean, like the the adrenaline of, is he going to escape was scary, but the actual things in the sky wasn't the scary part. That's freaking fascinating. Huh. See how much I'm learning from you? <laughs> well, and I, I'm having to dig back in memory pretty far, so... <laughs> It's a good brain exercise. There you go. You know, something I had thought about years ago that I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, war is part of the book. Technology is part of the book. Censorship is part of the book. You know, the control of the people. I, I love the idea. Basically, my take on the theme of the book is stupid people are happy people. And it's true. Look around. It's true. But I, just thinking about it, it's kind of interesting that the world, as far as pollution and climate change, I mean, I realized climate change wasn't a thing in the 50s when he wrote it, but certainly the, the rise of industry and the growth of traffic and stuff like that is just not an issue. And I don't know, it seems like if I were writing a futuristic book, maybe because it just wasn't part of the conversation in the 50s, but I would have to think about, well, what kind of place environmentally is the world going to be? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. What is and what isn't there? Thank you for this. This was fascinating yeah. and fun. You're welcome. It's kind of fun for me to think about that book. I haven't thought about it in a while. More of that interview will be played in our supplemental episode about the 2018 version of this movie. But now, back to the episode. That was Sally. <laughs> wow, that was a really great interview. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, she had some really interesting things to say. And um, I had to cut some of it out because it, it kind of went into a whole other directions, but I loved having Sally on the show. Hopefully she'll, she'll come back. But let's go ahead and talk about books in school since we're on that topic. This is a book that has been challenged and attempted to be banned. Which is why we're reading it for Banned Books Week, which everyone should know about and read a banned book. For sure. Now, this podcast doesn't come out until October. We basically took September off so that I could recover from eye surgery. Yay, technology and living in the freaking future. My eye is turning into a cyborg eye as we speak, which is awesome. But yes, uh, September Banned Book Month, the last week of September Banned Book Week. So I have some factoids and a little tiny bit of context. Are you ready for this, Jennifer? You ready for my... I am. Fun facts. Okay. It was challenged because of its use of profanity and using God's name in vain. This was in Santa Rosa. She also had concerns about Bradbury, including sex, drugs, suicide, murder, and abortion. She called it filth. It was assigned to eighth graders. Um, the school district decided to keep the book. 2017, you guys. That is not very long ago. It was challenged and it made a lot of headlines. It was actually removed from classrooms in Bay County in 1987 because of vulgarity, according to an article by the New York Times. The book's banning resulted in a class action lawsuit, a media stir, and student protests in 1987. 
So that's my band aspect. Let's transition to talking about Bradbury. My version of the book has two afterwords in it. <laughs> and it has some some discussion from Bradbury. And one of them, okay. He's extremely sensitive to any attempts to restrict his free speech. For instance, he objects strongly to letters that he has received suggesting that he revise his treatment of females or black characters. He sees such interventions as essentially hostile and intolerant as the first step in the road to book burning, which honestly, I agree that an author shouldn't go back and rewrite their book. I feel like when you write something, when you produce a piece of art and then you put it in the world you kind of have to live with what it was. And if you grow and learn and change and become a better or different person, then you can create better or different art. But I don't think we should go back and start taking words out and changing things. I think we should leave them because they are a touchstone in a time and place. For example, I know that I have used ableist language on this podcast in years past, and I have apologized. I'm not going to go back and re-edit to make it look like I've never said these words. I stand by the fact that I said them, and I stand by the fact that I've apologized for them, and I am attempting to not use them in the future. This is how I'm showing that my apology is genuine, by doing better in the future, not going back and trying to pretend like they didn't exist. I don't mind having an author put in afterwards Yeah, to say, you know, this is something I wrote at this time. This mm -hmm. is how we feel about it now. So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. An afterward is good. An acknowledgement is is great. And but but don't go back. And we we had there were cases of that. They did that in this for for this book. There was a version of this book that was published with a bunch of words changed. And so ugh. I think it's slightly different when somebody else takes it upon themselves to boulderize your book or your works, mm -hmm. meaning to censor it in an extreme way that it's cartoonish to what it was intended to do. Yeah. So boulderization is your vocabulary word for the day. <laughs> that is different from an author going, you know what, I really am uncomfortable with what I put out. I don't mind an author having a revised edition. I'm very wary of judging media with the morals of today because I know that morals change and what is accepted now it might not be accepted in the future in the same way that what was accepted in the past is not accepted now. So it's okay to say this, this book has problematic language. This book uses words we don't use nowadays, but I don't, I don't think that we should be reproducing Huckleberry Finn and taking out. I don't mind that, you know, there's the whole death of the author mm -hmm. and there is understanding the context within which it was written. This is where I kind of get annoyed with Bradbury as a curmudgeon. He would have people say, you know, it's really sexist when these women are having a conversation and you're showing their emptiness and their desensitization through how their reproduction is. Like, they're completely reduced to a, a real woman, a correct woman, wouldn't have these thoughts and feelings about children and abortions and their husband being away. Like, that's all their connection is through their relationships. That is a valid criticism of how he writes women that there are no minorities present. There is a distinction between saying, hey, you know, you're being kind of an ass here. Maybe you want to clean that up in the future and him going, don't censor me. Right. Well, and I think that the, what you just said was different, though. You're being an ass here. Maybe do better in the future is different than you're being an ass here. You should rewrite this book. Well, this is kind of going into his political correctness issue. Yes. And he definitely has a bone to pick with political correctness. He's very against 
minorities, he keeps using the word minorities, and, and special interest groups getting to have their say. And and it just really, really reeks of... Privileged white guy? Privileged white guy, yes. But also, like, you're taking away my rights by giving people rights, which is not the same thing. It doesn't actually deprive me of rights. If you also have rights, it deprives me of having more rights than you, which is unfair. So Mm -hmm. he is a bit of a crank and a bit of a curmudgeon. Yeah, I don't agree with censoring him against his will, but... He is being an ass. Well, and then the other thing, too, is like, we're not telling you how to write, but maybe we're saying we're not going to buy our next book. Case in point, J.K. Rowling. Okay, you're going to go online and say a bunch of turfy things and be pretty much anti the transgender community. I don't want to, I'm not buying any more of your stuff. I, that's a choice that I get to make. So free speech isn't 100% free of consequences. Say whatever you want, but you, you're not free from the consequences. And the consequences is that a bunch of people don't want to read your stuff. And I'm glad that I already own the Harry Potter books. I'm glad that I already own the Harry Potter movies and she's not getting any more money from me. And yes, we are getting political. That's my stance. I'm sticking to it. As you have, I think you have said in every episode we've made of this podcast, there is death of the author. I do ascribe to a deconstructionist theory of literature where sometimes it's okay to look at the book or the piece of medium as on its own merits outside of the scope. I think it's important to look at who wrote it and when and where and how and why, if that's relevant. But some stories are just good no matter who wrote them. Yes. I also want to let people know that it's okay if you want to consume that media, if that's what you like. And mm-hmm. knowing that an author has shitty opinions, it's it's okay to still like their work and have that separate from the author. You know, Ezra yeah. Pound has beautiful poetry, but he was a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah. So people are problematic. It's it's still okay. If you want to draw a line, that's fine. It's a personal choice. All your faves are problematic. To a certain extent, yeah. Back to Bradbury. Not only is he problematic, but the, like you said, he's a little hypocritical. I have this amazing quote. Okay, are you ready from this? And I will link this in our show notes. So in a in a 2007 interview, he was interviewed. He was saying it was actually Fahrenheit 451 is really about how television destroys the interest in reading literature. This is a quote. Television gives you the dates of Napoleon, but not who he was, Bradbury summar- says, summarizing TV's content with a single word that he spits out as if an epithet factoids he says this while sitting in a room dominated by a gigantic flat panel television broadcasting the fox news channel muted factoids crawling across the bottom of the screen (laughs) fox news yep oh the article continues most Americans did not have televisions when Bradbury wrote Fahrenheit 451, and those who did watched seven-inch screens in black and white. Interestingly, his book imagined a future of giant color sets, flat panels that hung on walls, like moving paintings. And television was used to broadcast meaningless drivel to divert attention and thought away from an impending war. And in fact, Bradbury became famous because his stories were translated for television, beginning in 1951 for the show Out There. Eventually, he had his own program, the Ray Bradbury Theater, which was on HBO. So, Mr. Bradbury, Mr. Television is bad, as I sit here with my giant television tuned to Fox News, muted so the factoids can continually spread, and made money and got fame from having a television show. (laughs) He's okay with movies, but not TV. He's had television shows. Seriously. Yeah, the DVD, which I purchased off Amazon for $10. Oh my god, okay. First of all, there's a whole special feature about how the movie was made, which is fascinating, which I love because I have opinions about the movie. But 
also there's a 2002 interview with with Bradbury and I just a few nuggets okay are you ready for a few nuggets from this interview originally the Fahrenheit 451 is ba- the, the book 50,000 words is based on a short story that he wrote which was called The Fireman it was published first in Galaxy magazine and then a young editor of magazines came to Bradbury and said, will you sell this to me for $400? I need to have something to put into my magazines so that so that people will keep buying my magazines and reading it. So sure, this guy bought it. That man, his name is Hugh Hefner. <gasps> this story, The Fireman, is in the second, third, and fourth issues of Playboy. According to Bradbury, men owe me a debt of gratitude because I helped start that magazine. Okay. <laughs> also, this is just an interesting thing. His great-great-grandmother, Mary, was tried as a witch. Her name was Mary Bradbury. And her death by being burned at the stake, along with the library burning in Alexandria, as well as, you know, China and Hitler, were part of his impetus to writing this book. It is his only science fiction novel, according to him. And he does also think that he invented the Walkman radio. Because some Japanese businessmen, they showed him the Walkman and they said it was like his seashell radios. And this this is a direct quote. Quote, it's better than the ghetto blaster. Bradbury thinks he invented the Walkman. Yeah, he also said that when they put the seashells on him, they yelled, 451, 451, 451, as like a thing. <sighs> so Bradbury is not very... For for all that he loves introspection, he isn't very understanding of his own positions. We have to talk about the movie. So. Okay, I just want to make one other thing. Uh, Bradbury hated political correctness. He said he hated politics. At the same time, he wishes we never left the moon. I'm like, that was funded through government that you hate. You hate the government that funded the library that you wrote this book in. That was public tax-derived funds from politics. Not making the connection there, Bradbury. Again, all your faves are problematic. (laughs) So let's talk about the movie. I loved this movie. I know it was in the 60s. I don't care. It was... The Flying Firemen is really awkward, though. The Flying Firemen are very awkward. That is, There are definitely some moments where it looks dated. There's definitely some moments where you're like, this is kind of silly and lame. But I'm giving it a pass because it was in 1966. They were trying. And you could tell when they tried to go futuristic with the Flying Firemen, it looked dumb. But when they stuck to more simplistic things and elements of what the future was, it was cool. For example, there was multiple telephones and lots of different styles of telephone at one point he needs to call for help and he picks up one phone and then oh he goes and he picks up another phone and he goes they have like three telephones and they're all slightly different and they kind of like have this very old school look but then Clarice uses when they're downtown is also a payphone but it, it is a little bit more sleek and futuristic so it kind of has this idea of playing with sometimes the old stuff and quotes is there for an aesthetic for example, Linda gives him the gift of a of a razor that is a straight razor that's in a pen and then throws away his electric razor. So I thought that it did a good job of saying, okay, we know we're going to have to use quote unquote outdated technology. It's going to be outdated, you know, it, it soon. So we're going to lean into it and make that part of the aesthetic. I just, I just loved it. There's also kind of a cool callback to certain things. So you highlight the straight razor by 
doing that. You highlight the electric razor by having the straight razor in there. And there are times when you buy reproductions of things and, oh my God, look at what they used in 2020. Look, it's a funky little cell phone. Isn't that funky? Yeah, no, I I, I liked it. I liked the, the way it was done. It was not big and... It also shows a shifting technology, how quickly technology yes. changes. I, I thought it did well with what it could. I mean, they didn't have the technology in 1966 to, to do the big screens they didn't have the technology to make the hound so they left the hound out i'm okay with that it was fine it didn't need the hound they didn't have the technology to do the beetles in the book there's these cars that convert into helicopters that can convert down to cars back and forth and they didn't have that technology they tried with the flying fireman it was silly but you know i i just i appreciated what they did and what they what they didn't do and the acting i thought was well done so what do you think about clarice and Linda being played by the same actress. Okay, I read a lot of reviews where people were mad about this or they thought it was stupid. I freaking loved it. I got it. I got the point, what they were making and how it was intentional. Because in in the movie, Linda, not Mildred, but Linda has way more to do than in the book. So they fleshed her out. They made her a bigger character. And Clarice is actually a bigger character too. So in the movie, both women characters get more to do, have more autonomy, and are more integral to the plot. And they are definitely two sides of the same coin. It's almost as if everybody has that raw material to be hopeful, intellectual, rebellious, or conformity beaten down, just going to be completely unpl- you know, plugged in and therefore unplugged from reality. And depending on what your reality is and who your influences are can really dictate that because Clarice has this uncle and they're part of this underground and Linda does not. And so by having them be the same actress, I thought that it showed her range because they definitely were different from one another, but it it did a great job of showing how we could all we have the potential to be yes. better than what we are. It was lovely. And there was like these camera things where Clarice is shot like almost completely face on, wide, open face, very well lit. And Mild- uh, Linda is constantly being shot in profile. You know, it's just, it was, I thought it was great. I, I thought-, thought it was a genius move. The other thing I liked is Clarice in the book is 16 and she's just kind of this free little spirit. And that's what attracts him to her. That's getting into some creepy territory. So I like that Clarice in the movie was aged up. Yeah, she's older. So she's more, much more of a peer. Yeah, and she was a school teacher, which made more sense too. I, I definitely appreciated it. I liked the fact they left out the atomic bombs. I didn't think that it was necessary. I thought the movie was had enough in it. And it, it made it definitely a more optimistic ending. So I have a, a, a few nitpicks with the ending. Okay. One, I thought it was uh, it it was unintentional. They could not film on a good day. There was just bad weather, bad weather, and then they just decided, okay, we'll just film in the snow. And it worked really well with the book that they were using. And so that was, as far as filmmaking goes, I thought a stroke of genius. However, the ending in the movie feels dystopic to me. You don't have an identity anymore other than the book that you are. You're constantly repeating this book to yourself. I think that that was intentional to show that even though these people are making this progress, the step forward of like, we're going to reclaim books and literature and we're doing something differently because they grew up in the culture where they grew up, they don't really know how. So they're all are still very isolated. They're, they're together, 
but they're repeating their own books. And so they're they're not talking to one another. They're kind of talking at one another. They're still kind of locked into their own place. And that's, it's sad almost. And I thought that the snow and then the back and forth really brought that forward, that it was not a glorious, everything's going to be perfect now. It is that this is one small step to the next thing, but they have to learn again how to have conversation. And let's, let's, you know, be clear, like, they did talk and do other things and then they went and they're walking back and forth and they're doing the thing they're memorizing. I was thinking, well, what book would I want to be? God damn it. I could only be one book. I want to be a thousand books. I want to have all of those things in and just to have to sit there and memorize and memorize and memorize and repeat. I totally understand your frustration though. I would not want to be limited to one book. So there is something that they could have changed that would have made the hopeful part of that become a little bit more clear that this isn't forever. The scene when when the old man is repeating the book for the child, these words are coming out in the most boring way possible. It's words without emotion. And when the child repeats it back, it's there's no connection to the knowledge behind them, which was the whole point of this, is that you have introspection, that you're thinking about what it is. So if you wanted to change that ending, when the child's repeating it, have the child kind of sit back and like say the words a little bit differently, have him emote, have him recognize what he's saying. I, that is a quibble. You're allowed to quibble. Personally, that didn't bother me because when I'm memorizing something, I memorize it first and then put the inflection in afterwards. So that's just a, maybe a difference. In- but that's the thing is, you know, as he's repeating it back, you know, the, the man dies and there he is kind of repeating it have him start thinking about what he's memorized instead of just I memorized a book I memorized a book I have to remember this book because if I don't then this book is going to be gone forever I also thought that it was kind of cool and they they didn't reference this in either but they could have very easily that originally books were just spoken that's you know people with the epic poems they would recite them obviously with more inflection but that's how stories would get passed down and told and how that sort of stuff would keep alive. Also in the movie, they didn't talk about like, you can't just have the book. You have to have the the time, the leisure to read it, the time to think about it. So they, they couldn't put everything in the movie, but your quibbles are allowed. I had a quibble. I mean, my quibble was the freaking flying fireman. <laughs> my, I have another quibble. And that was that in the book, he already had books hidden before he met Clarice. And in the movie, she is really the, the the thing that starts his whole Yeah, she's journey. the impetus for everything. And I felt like it was a little fast. In the book, it was definitely he'd already had, and it was an instinctual thing. They talked about it. Like he had, he'd stolen these books and hidden them without even really being aware of why he was doing it. He just felt compelled. It was compulsory. In the movie, it was a little bit different. So sure, I liked that aspect of the book better. I did like that they, they left Faber out. They left him out. That was fine. I don't think he was necessary. One very big change, though, that I'm, I'm kind of conflicted about how I feel is that the book, most of it takes place at night. And in the movie, it's completely at daytime. The only nighttime scenes is he's in his house reading by the light of a lamp or by the light of the television. But all the rest of it is daytime. I wonder if that's because with the filming techniques that they had in the filming uh, technology they had, it's really hard to film fire without it burning the film. I just, it was very interesting because the book, some of it was very scary. The fires at night 
are very scary. And in the movie, they burn the other big thing, and this seems to go hand in hand, is that in the book, they burn the whole house. It's it's the whole house. And in the movie, they're literally just burning the books. This opening scene is they go into this house, they take out the books, they put them in a bag, they throw the bag downstairs, they put them on a little pyre thing, they burn the books, then they're done. And in the movie, the only time when they burn something that's not just the books is when the old lady refuses to leave her house and burns herself with the books. And when Montag who has been betrayed by his wife and now he's handed the flamethrower and he's going to burn the books. The first thing he burns is his marriage bed. And then he burns the television and the guy, his chief is going, what are you doing? Don't burn the house, burn the books. Then he turns it on the books. So I thought that was very intentional, but the idea of the, of the nighttime fire of this thing where people would all come out and it's spectacle, the circus of it all that really works better at night than in the day. It's just scary. Your fire is scary. That goes also uh, to kind of that primordial need that we have with fire, that connection we have. And Bradbury does, talk very eloquently about this in the book, how we're fascinated with it. And it goes with the idea that we need the stimulation, but that what we're being stimulated by is this really hollow, destructive act. I feel like a filmmaker who wouldn't have been hemmed in in the way that they were in 1966 might have filmed more of this at night because it is scarier. That said, we haven't watched the 2018 adaptation on HBO with uh, Michael B. Jordan, but we will be, and that'll be a fun supplemental episode. I have a feeling there will be nighttime fires because it is just so much more visually interesting. So that's a little quibble, but I understand why. And I do think that what they did do was was very memorable, especially with this Hitchcockian type of themes. They had a couple of shots that are almost directly their Hitchcock shots. I, I really do love that Clarice doesn't just disappear and is assumed dead. Bradbury did write a play that takes place afterwards where you catch up with Montag and Clarice and all these other characters and find out what happens to them. But once Clarice is done in the book, she's done. She kind of pushes him on this this pathway and then she's gone. That was her point where she's much more of a character in the movie. Yeah, I love the change. I love the change that both Clarice and Linda had far more to do. So this is a total quibble. I, I wish they had kept the poem that he read in the book the same because that poem is really beautiful on its own. Instead, he reads a passage from Charles Dickens about, you know, little Dora who dies. The problem with that is you don't have any background. You don't have any relationship to this character. It was a famous moment in America when they were waiting for the newspaper to get that chapter of little Dora. Did she live or not? Because that's how it was published at the time. You know, they would be chapterized in newspapers. And so people were waiting at the dock and going, did she live? Did she live? Because it was a big deal. So from a literary history uh, perspective, it's an interesting thing that people were so in love with books and stories that that was the extreme that they went to. It's like the midnight hanging out at a bookstore to get the Harry Potter novel that we now go, uh, your favorites are problematic, but so what? <laughs> They're your faves. Enjoy it. Dress up. Have fun. But you don't have the connection with the character. And so why is this person crying other than it's tapping into maybe a little something about a person dying? But that's why I loved about the poem. The poem encapsulated that without having to have the background that a novel would. I don't think they could get the permission somehow to do that, which was interesting. But I'm with you that the, the poem would have definitely have been have been better. So this is a little trivia thing. I... I found it really fascinating that his relative was burned as a witch and then the woman who 
was being burned. There's so much symbolism within that. And one of them is the last book that you see is Joan of Arc. Yeah. Okay. And I, again, I love this movie, but another quibble, the Salvador Dali book, there is this very long shot of a Salvador Dali book that's like flipping and 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 flipping. And I know, because I listened to the commentary, that it was partly a camera angle trick thing because that's a difficult technology thing to make the book look like it's moving and to be filming it and stuff, all these little jump cuts and stuff. But God, it didn't need to be there. There was too much flipping book. Ha <laughs> ha. Too much flipping book. Ha. Ha ha ha. I love the little additions though that the movie had. I love that the freaking captain with his little medallions, he's like, you're my special boy. I'll give you a medallion. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're my special boy. I'll give you a medallion. The guy's like, oh, you already did. Because all of the guys look, look the totally same. the same. Yes. Loved. So you said that you had a personal theory about the two guys that were being chewed out? Yeah. I Okay understand i'm queer i like to read queer subtext into everything if i possibly can for sure so there's my caveat but these two guys something about them the first thing we get is that they they get separated they were sitting next to each other and now they can't sit next to each other anymore and then they're being like basically called into the principal's office the captain's office right and they're like huddled over and they're they're whispering back and forth and they're like and then they get brought in and they're being berated and from the outside, because Montag's watching this, the captain's like smacking him around and like giving him what for and, you know, corporal punishment, blah, blah, blah. And the captain comes out and he goes, so you need to like increase the amount of sports. These boys need more sports. We have to keep them busy so they're happy. So basically they can't have enough time and energy to get into trouble, you know, to think things. And so I was like, okay, were they reading? Were they sneaking books? No, because that would have been a bigger deal. Were they, was there buggering happening? It was there, you know, what was it? And that's totally how I read it. I read it as, oh, these boys like each other in a way that the captain doesn't like because that's this going to be anti-conformity. You know, that's it's anti-social because you're supposed to get married and blah, 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 blah. That's how I totally saw it. And maybe I'm just really bringing my own stuff to it. What do you think? Am I totally off base? You can tell me. Yeah, there's so little context there. It's just these two guys in trouble. And I was just watching the scene going, well, did you edit something out that would have made the scene make sense? I mean, and it could have just been a platonic friendship. They're not allowed to be platonic friends. They're not allowed to build those relationships. They're keeping everybody separate. And, and this is your job. And then you do this. And then you go home. And what do you do on your day off? I mow the lawn. Well, what if they tell you that mowing the lawn is dangerous? Well, then I'll just watch it grow. Like, there's this definite, like, pat, you know, answer response thing that they're expecting. This sense of conformity without relationship for the men. So maybe that was all it was that they were just friendly. But anytime I see two guys canoodling together and then getting in trouble, I Kaylee go, is a shipper. So seriously, plus one of them totally had gay hair. I'm sorry. It's true. Another issue that I, I took with the movie is that's much more government censorship and government control where the book, it's more, we did this to ourselves. No, I, I disagree. I think that the book wasn't laying it on thick that there was a government but again we have one television channel we have one thing in the ears we have the helicopters and the the filming of montag in quote montag's execution and i i really feel like even though it at that point the government is the thing behind the curtain that nobody's paying attention to but it's definitely a, a 
government control and then we have all the bombs and we have the war and we have all that stuff i feel like the government was just like a silent partner for the regime in the movie it made it a little bit more obvious but also in the movie the firemen did more they didn't just burn books they also cut people's hair so they were like the arm of the government this entity that was doing control and I just thought that they were basically took what he had put in the book, but they made it a little bit more extreme because that's what movies do. So was it worth your time? Um, I'm going to say I feel like the book is more part of the social consciousness than it really deserves. I, I, you know, when it comes to, well, media is bad. Television's bad. Are you saying that people can just read the Cliff Notes version and be fine? I just get sick of Bradbury. Well, technology sucks. I I hate that. You know, we're both technology people for a reason. And this has been an ongoing thing with baby boomers versus uh, Generation X and Generation Z that, oh, you guys are on your phone all the time. You're not connecting as people. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing on my phone? I'm texting my friend. So I'm sorry. The book is or is not worth your time. I'm going to say it's just overblown. I, I think Bradbury is a huge hypocrite. Yeah, I mean, it's a short book, but it's not really, it doesn't deserve the space in canon that it gets. Okay. And I will say the book's totally worth your time because it's 50,000 words. It's a fast read. It's dense. It has some beautiful lines in it that I really, really like. I feel like there are things in it that'll stick with you. Bradbury is definitely a a hypocritical oaf. But that doesn't mean he didn't write an interesting book. And I found the book interesting. And also, I feel like I feel like because it is a touchstone in our society, for good or for ill, you need to have experienced it for yourself so that you can actually talk about it and not just be like, oh, I heard enough about it. Or I heard this podcast about it. Now I feel like I've read it. Because trust me, you didn't. My recap, obviously, it had to leave some stuff out. So now how about the movie, Jennifer? Somebody liked the movie a lot more. I would say it was fine for a Sunday when my brother and I didn't have anything to do. We were hanging out on the couch going, huh, well, here's a film. Well, gee, that was a film. That, that's cool. And I would say I'm super glad that I own this movie. <laughs> I will watch it again. I thought it was beautifully shot. I thought the acting was great. It was a little bit slow in parts, but I liked that. I thought it built tension. I liked the Hitchcockian moments and homages. I thought the changes that were made were good. I thought it could totally stand up on its own. I feel like a lot of times critics of the time didn't like it and a lot of other people don't seem to like it because they think of it's going to be sci-fi and a lot of times, and this is not just modern, but a lot of times people think sci-fi means robots and explosions and spaceships and that's not what sci-fi is. And so that irks me. This is definitely sci-fi. It's prescient. It's interesting. I think it is just as relevant now as it was before. And I think it's actually a little bit timeless. I think you can watch it today and and still get the stuff from it, the fear and the anxiety. And yeah, I highly recommend it. It's totally worth your time. It's worthwhile to watch the film and read the book and then listen to a podcast or have a great discussion about it that brings out all these themes because that's where it gets really interesting. Which goes into how difficult it is to get. And we we had this issue. Normally, when we pick a book and a movie for the podcast, we try to make sure that it's accessible to people. (laughs) And this movie is a little bit difficult to get, which is 
fascinating. So I ended up buying it on Amazon for $10, the DVD, which had some great extras. So I'm very, very glad that I did that. And you streamed it. Well, actually, so we were looking, well, we can't have people just have to buy a $10 movie. We couldn't find anywhere that was streaming. I got it at the library. Yes. So the library is always a good bet. I won't say always, but it's a lot of times for older films that aren't streaming free anywhere. The library is a really good resource. So hooray for the library. And I'm glad I pay taxes that support my local library just so I could get films like this. Libraries are fantastic. Ray Bradbury spent $9.80 on a public like library typewriter where it was like 10 cents for every half hour he used it. He wrote the whole book on that. Libraries are great. I love them. Indeed. So that was our episode. Have you seen this movie? Do you remember this book fondly from 8th grade or 12th grade or whenever you read it? Have you actually read it? Or are you just part of the mass of people who have gleamed its meaning by social osmosis? Drop us an email at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com or visit our social media pages on Facebook or Twitter and let us hear your thoughts. If you want to support the show, awesome. Please tell your friends and neighbors about how much you enjoy our show. Feel free to leave us a positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen. And we, of course, we do have that Patreon page where you can give us a dollar a month so that we can afford to buy DVDs if um, getting to the library is problematic. And we have a page at the KMMA Media Podcast Network, so visit www.kmmamedia.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye! Being drawn to certain things, and those, but that can be very easily manipulated. <laughs> and let's not forget that Ted Cruz fucking ate a booger on it during one of the debates several years ago on live television. So, I mean... I don't remember that. Oh, my God. Wow. It's like there's, like, the snot thing. You can see it. It, like, drools down his face from his nostril, and then he just sticks his tongue up and goes, like this at one point. I'm going to be sick. I'm sorry. I'm not going to put that in our show notes for you guys. You can, uh. you can all just... You can look it up on your own time, but it exists. Just saying. Oh, what? okay so there are other reasons not to vote for him but that's not (laughs) helpful right i'm just saying you know that wasn't what tipped me over to be you know against him but it certainly didn't didn't hurt i don't i don't know it is it is interesting so